KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. Today we bring you a special on the crisis of childcare during the COVID-19 pandemic. What has happened in this pandemic is that the burden has fallen on childcare to be the answer for other people to go to work. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'll examine how the burden of this crisis has fallen largely on women. Even if it doesn't bother you that women are being systematically pushed out of the workforce, women who are likely to be coming up with vaccines and therapeutics and treatment are being systematically pushed out of the workforce. How childcare providers and educators are disproportionately feeling the effects of COVID-19 and what role do childcare and preschool play in reopening our economy? That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. For many parents of young children, the pandemic has made childcare the most challenging issue of their lives. For some who have kept their kids home, caregiving has affected their ability to work. For others who don't have the option to work at home, the health risk posed by sending their child to daycare has to be weighed against loss of income. And the childcare centers and the people who operate them have lost income and are struggling to stay open. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser has been focusing on this issue and brings us this special program, COVID-19 and the Child Care Crisis. Here's Claire with more. Since the start of the pandemic, I have done several stories about child care. In doing these stories, I was reminded over and over that there's been a lot of media coverage of K-12 schools and universities, but there was very little about childcare centers and preschools. And that really seems to always be the case, even before the pandemic. So I focus my stories on this age group and the unique challenges they face. For example, uh, kids that young may have a hard time washing hands or social distancing and wearing a mask. But at the same time, some centers stayed open throughout the pandemic, unlike schools for older kids. And now they're facing a new challenge. Childcare centers across the region and the country are struggling to stay open, which could create a crisis for parents in the future. And this is something that we're seeing getting more and more national attention right now as well. So this panel will delve into these issues. And because this is relevant to the topic, I should note that I'm also the mother of a three-year-old who is now back at his preschool. He's been back for about a month um, with lots of new rules and restrictions. 
no one believes me that he wears a mask all day, but he does. <laughs> and he washes his hands about 20 times a day, I think. Um, so, you know, that's where I'm coming from on this topic. So to start, I wanted to ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves and answer a simple question. Should child care centers be open right now? Randy, if you want to get started, you can go first. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Randy Lam. I am a father of a one and a three-year-old. And absolutely, child care centers need to be open. Um, I mean, we all expect to get our trash taken, go to the grocery store, get food. A lot of those essential workers, they have kids and they need help with childcare. So to, to some extent, childcare centers do need to be accessible to, to people. Dr. Fielding Miller, uh, do you wanna go next? Yeah, I'm Rebecca Fielding Miller. I'm a social epidemiologist at UC San Diego, which means I study all the ways social things like our jobs and our economics and our race put some people at higher risk of getting sick than others. And we certainly see that in COVID. Um, I also am the mother of a three-year-old. Her birthday was yesterday, so she's officially three. Um, and she has been back at an official child care center also for about a month. So yeah, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be a hypocrite to say no. I think, um, yeah, I, I do think it's essential that child care should be open. Um, and even beyond that, I think we need to be really thoughtful about what we're prioritizing when we reopen. And I think child care should certainly be among our top priorities. And then we have uh, Leah Austin, who's joining us from Berkeley. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Leah Austin. I'm the director of the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, I'm also a mom. I have two third graders who um, are in distance learning and um, not using our before and after school child care that we have been using uh, pre-pandemic. Um, and I will say that it's a simple question and I think it's a really complicated answer. I think that childcare and school closures definitely harm working parents, but what has happened in this pandemic is that the burden has fallen on childcare to be the answer for other people to go to work rather than examining what we should be doing to make sure that workers across occupations can sustain themselves. You know, right now it is the case that most K-12 schools are closed for distance learning and not just out of concern for children's family and health, but also for their teachers. And these teachers in public school, we know are largely white, middle-class and unionized. And they've said quite loudly, you know, I care about my students, but I'm not willing to risk my life for them. And that sounds reasonable to me. So I think we have to ask why, unlike K-12, childcare programs are open in the middle of the pandemic. And part of that is looking at who our early educators are for the most part, childcare operators are women. More than half of the staff and programs are women of color. As a group, they earn less than nearly all other workers in California, and they are experiencing poverty at rates that are six times out of our public school teachers. So there's nothing that makes childcare teachers though less susceptible to COVID, and actually they may be more at risk because many are from uh, experiencing economic insecurity. They're from Black and uh, Latino communities, which are facing the highest risk of dying from COVID-19 in California. So I think we can't ignore the role that the historical undervaluing of work performed by women and by people of color has in creating these, these conditions. And it's also the case that, you know, unlike public school, that childcare is largely based on market. So money that comes into programs is largely from what parents are paying. So we know from surveys that we've done, um, 
demonstrated of open programs we surveyed this past summer, 80% reported they were open because they don't have the resources to survive a closure, even if they want it to be closed. And that one in five had already missed a rent or mortgage payment on their program. So in other words, they're open because you know, they need a roof over their head and childcare providers want to be open and serving kids, but they also want to be safe and to have the resources to support themselves and, and stabilize themselves. And so I think there are some important questions we have to ask about what type of stabilization funds we need to support and protect the sector and the workforce and providers um, at the same time. And really, you know, how do we support parents um, simultaneously and also ask a really important question about why it's been acceptable to ask largely low-income women of color to risk their health and possibly their their own lives for an average of $13 an hour. Holly Weber, do you want to introduce yourself as well? Sure, of course. My name is Holly Weber, and I own and operate Magic Hours Children's Center in San Diego. We are a licensed facility uh, through the state of California that accepts ages 24 months to kindergarten. And so let's start with uh, Randy. Tell us more about your two kids and how you've managed to care for them since March. So um, my kids have been back in daycare since about early July. And uh, prior to then, it was just working from home, uh, both parents working from home and the kids home. It was, it was chaos. I, every day, I just, it, it, was, it was very challenging. I, I, I did you know, it wasn't until maybe midday where things kind of settled and I saw what the kids' moods were. And, uh, you know, when they were both asleep that I was able to kind of rest and, and, and catch up. But yeah, since, since then, the kids have been well, you know, everyone has been healthy and it really helps that we were able to um, find a childcare provider that was in tune. And in addition to the families, like the families that we share our childcare uh, provider with, we've been together for several years now. Uh, many years now. So it's, it's good to know the families, know that we're on the same page, know that we're trying to keep each other healthy in addition to um, childcare provider because it's an at-home daycare. So, you know, we are putting her own family at risk and she's got two kids as well. So yeah, it, it definitely helps that we're able to find a childcare center and with, um, with other families that we really trusted. Yeah. And that's, you said that's an in-home daycare, so yes. a small group of kids? Yeah, there are, uh, you know, it, it fluctuates, but at the very, it goes from three to five different families. You know, any, uh, some families have two kids in there like us, or other kids just have one. And then, um, Rebecca, tell us about your daughter and how you've managed care for her, and then also what you weighed as an epidemiologist when you were deciding to send her back to child care. Yeah, so I think we tried about every variant that every parent has tried um, since her uh, daycare shut down. So we started off, I think for the first week, everybody got a test and we, we went to my parents and we just begged my parents, like, please just watch our kid for a week, we'll be back. And that was great, um, but my parents live three and a half hours away and they um, wanted to be retired. Um, so you know, we got her back and that was fine. And then my husband and I traded off mornings and afternoons. So I would be with her in the mornings, And then in the afternoon, I would um, teach research methods and try to get any work done and be up until 10 working. And then Fridays and Saturdays, I would just hide in my office um, at UCSD all day long. Um, that lasted a few weeks, and it turns out that's not really sustainable. Um, everybody was exhausted. Nobody was happy. 
except my kid. She liked it. So at which point we got a babysitter um, and we had um, a local 16 year old who was out of school because it was the summer um, come and watch my daughter for most of the day, except for nap time. And we felt pretty reasonable about that um, because we know that 16 year olds are probably lower, a little bit lower risk as far as babysitters go. Um, And she was in the neighborhood and she was great and my kid loved her, but it was time to have fewer people in my home so that I could get work done because I live in San Diego and my house is small. Um, So we decided that we needed a longer term solution, especially as um, high school opened again and schools began to reopen. So we looked around at our options and I had really loved our previous childcare. It was going to reopen, but I was not comfortable with the, I, I didn't know enough about the ventilation system. Um, and it has become increasingly clear that aerosols are a major part of how this spreads. So touching surfaces and then touching your face is definitely also a possibility, but it's become pretty clear that this is functionally airborne. And so when I was thinking about childcare, I was thinking about how can I make sure my kid is outside as much as possible with as much fresh circulating air and as few families as possible. So we got really lucky and it turns out literally a three minute walk from my house is a home base, is a licensed home based care center that is entirely outdoors. They're um, feral at this point. She just comes home filthy and so happy. And they're just, they're outside all day long. Um, They take their naps outside, they eat outside. There's usually no more than 10 kids and the parents all have kind of signed a COVID pact and are pretty transparent with one another. So um, they don't wear masks, but I felt like that was a good, um, that was a good risk level for me. And frankly, to do my job as an epidemiologist, I I needed care. And so there was kind of a bit of a mental health trade-off for that too. And then Holly, you're, I, I remember talking to you back in March, just as schools were closing and we said, oh, you're, you know, your preschool has stayed open. And then I kept checking in and it was still open and it was still open. So you stayed open during the entire pandemic. How did you make that decision? And uh, what has it been like? What what changes have you made? It was easy to make the decision to stay open. For, for, for us, we had parents that needed to work. We've always considered ourselves to be essential without having it need to be substantiated from the powers that be. We knew that we wanted to be here. Uh, staff wanted to help. Parents needed the care. I had overhead obligations. I mean, it was kind of really a no-brainer to continue to put one foot in front of another and keep going. I imagine that you have had to make a lot of changes during during that time. Can you summarize some of some of the changes that you've made? Yeah, um, primarily the group sizes, um, the decrease of of smaller group sizes for our kiddos, and the increase in staffing. So we had gone from a two to 24 ratio, which means that in our environment, we have very large um, classrooms that had a capacity for up to 24 children with two staff. And what we um, instantly had to do is reduce that down to group sizes of 10. And we had to, what was right for us, triple our staff to be able to accommodate appropriate um, schedules to accommodate pickup and drop-off procedures and make some uh, minor alterations to the classroom, put up dividers, 
lots, lots of things have changed, but the core of, of what we continue to do is remain the same. And I know, I mean, you've talked about that by doing that, you're obviously not having the same profit margins that you used to, or maybe you're, you're losing money. So can you explain more about that? And, um, you know, whether you, you still feel like your business is going to be able to be sustainable? Well, when I first, when we first started, I mean, I had no idea how long this was going to last. And I've operated this facility for 30 years. So we've been through ups and downs. We've sustained some blows. We have had, um, you know, incidents of change of ownerships and we've had physical layout issues that rendered us not able to operate for two weeks at a time. So I'd kind of gone through ups and downs before and I had no idea, you know, somebody had said, it's September and we're going to have this panel and talk about this. I would not have expected it to go that far. So I think in the operation of staying open, you just kind of get deeper and deeper and more rooted and invested in the challenge. And then you find yourself indebted to, you know, afford the expenses. Uh, You also find yourself very emotionally invested in it not getting the best of what we've worked very hard to sustain for 30 years. So yeah, there's a lot of of, uh, economic disaster that has occurred and I'm in it. I I can't stop now. Can't go back. Um, And and Leah, this you know, seems to relate directly to some of the survey work that you've done. Can you summarize specifically the results for Southern California? Sure. So we um, have conducted a couple of surveys, once in the spring and then again this summer of childcare providers across the state. And um, our first survey in April, and when we look at the Southern region, which does include San Diego, it's similar and maps on to, to some of what we found um, for the state as a whole, which just echoes, I think, what Holly just described, that programs are facing severe financial challenges um, at the same time that they're worried about you know, health risk and, and teachers' health and staff and, and parents. Um, 69% of programs in the Southern region that we surveyed reported that they had a loss of revenue from families who were unable to pay, which is not totally surprising. So some of that were families withdrawing, some programs were still serving families, but families were not able to pay either full or um, partial uh, fees or tuition. Most programs have had to make some staffing changes of some kind. About a third have reported that they furloughed staff and about a third had laid off staff. In addition to that, you know, 60% of the respondents in the Southern California region reported difficulty obtaining basic like cleaning supplies and PPE supplies. And 70% indicated that they would like and needed help with mini grants and purchasing supplies. Um, And I think a sign of just how severe the financial crunch and the financial crisis is for many programs, um, among those open programs in the region that we surveyed, one in five reported difficulty in obtaining the food that they need for their childcare program. So there's the health and safety supplies, just the regular things you need on a daily basis, but also just signaling that there's some real, there's so there's there's a lot of financial distress. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, 
Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. We continue a special program today on COVID-19 and the child care crisis. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser moderates the panel, which includes Dr. Lee Austin, director of the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley. She's also a mom to two third graders. Rebecca Fielding Miller, an assistant professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine's Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health, and mother of a three-year-old. Randy Lum, a scientist, husband, and father of two children, aged one and three, and Holly Weber, the owner and operator of Magic Hours Children's Center. And here is Claire Tergeser with more. Uh, Rebecca, I wanted to lean on your expertise here as an epidemiologist. Can you talk a little bit about the infection rates with adults and children and whether staff particularly at child care centers, would be at greater risk? Yeah, that's really the million-dollar question. And, you know, I think everything that Dr. Austin, that Leah has said about how the primarily women from primarily minoritized backgrounds are the ones doing this work um, and how they are also more likely to live in circumstances where with crowded housing or multi-generational homes, I think it's important to think about not only the um, the sort of one-to-one, you're with a kid who coughs in your eyes, as mine did the other day, um, kind of situation, but also because we systematically undervalue and underpay this work, these primarily women are more likely to be in situations where they are more likely to get infected just in their day-to-day as well. That said, I know that how infectious are kids is kind of the million dollar question right now. Um, And data are kind of still emerging. And my read of the data that we have right now, my interpretation is it looks like kids are probably a a little bit less likely to get infected as adults, um, but not dramatically less so. But if they clearly get less sick, right? They're much they're much more likely to be asymptomatic, um, with some very very rare dramatic exceptions. Um, and can they spread it to other adults or other kids? That's a really really big question mark. But you know, from what I have seen, my guess is kids probably don't spread it very well and they don't get sick. But that is kind of an educated interpretation of the data we have to date, and that's a big. That's a lot of conditionals to ask people to make choices on for $13 an hour. Right. Um, so, so Leah, I wanted to get back now to, to what you were talking about early on about staff at child care centers and their concerns over going back to work. What have you heard from people and, and what specifically would they like to be done? We um, have definitely heard concerns, both from the surveys that we've done and some ongoing sessions we've been hosting with people working in various different settings, homes and centers. 
But from our survey, for example, uh, per 60, 62% of providers reported that they have staff who are not working because they have concerns about their own health risks. So we know, you know, as, as uh, Rebecca was describing, that there's there are added health risks for the population who are providing early care and education services. We know, you know, in California, which is true nationally, that child care providers are often less likely to have health coverage than other workers. And so that's a real concern. You know, what happens if I get sick? Do I have health coverage? What about my family? So there are, are some real, you know, concerns just about that immediate exposure. And I think, you know, there are things that we, we can call for and that can be done if childcare is open, you know, and I do think that we have to talk about, you know, public investment uh, to stabilize programs, whether they're closed or open so that we can have a stable system long-term. But I, I do think that, you know, parents and providers have a real shared interest here and can be, you know, powerful, can, can help put pressure to make these issues, legislative issues, to have immediate responses in some of the emergency funds, both at a national and federal level. You know, we know that people want and need PPE supplies and sanitizing supplies, um, and they need them and they need access to them. Um, early educators need testing. They need to be able to get testing quickly and on a regular basis. They need to have sick leave and guaranteed sick leave if they have to be out, if there's an exposure or they have to quarantine and that they're guaranteed health coverage for themselves and their families if they do get sick. Uh, we have seen other communities, nobody is doing this perfectly in this country, um, or particularly well for that matter, but we have seen other places experiment with this and, and prioritize some of these needs. In New Mexico, for example, they're providing health care to uh, child care workers, you know, to, to make sure that at the very least um, that, that that is in place um, and doing more around testing. So I think these are things that uh, people need and they need them now um, as they're providing services in real time. Holly, I wanted to, to ask you, have you had teachers or other staff who didn't want to work during the pandemic and, and how did you handle that? My staff have been unwavering from day one, not even, they'd work for free at this time. I mean, I've been so lucky. I, I don't even like saying I, because we, have really literally all decided together as a group that we've got this and, and we're gonna do it together. So I've been very fortunate to not have that be an issue for my building. And we have talked a little bit about in San Diego County, they're trying to do a small thing that, that Leah is talking about where um, they're offering grants specifically to childcare providers to try and make up some of the money. I don't, that doesn't necessarily go towards staff or healthcare, but what, what has been your experience with that, with that grant program? I applied for it on the um, opening day of applications, and now I'm waiting. Um, I'm looking forward to some relief. It's based on a certain dollar amount. Um, there's a, a, from what I understand, there's an allotment of, of a dollar amount, specific dollar amount for the amount of children that I have a licensed capacity for. So um, if I did the math on that, it would scratch the surface for about a week, but I'll take it because I need it. So I'll be appreciative for it. Um, but just to scale it, it would, it would cover about mm, a week and a half of payroll, maybe. Are there other things that you think that, you know, 
federal, state, local governments could be doing to, to help uh -huh. out providers like you? Yeah, county and state, uh, I wish they would prioritize our industry differently. We are providing top level care and we're not getting support. We need expedited relief from those who regulate our industry. We can't be this essential and this little regarded. We are also, to my knowledge and to my capacity of thinking, the only industry that can't reinvent their business model. I can't offer care virtually. I can't change a diaper through Zoom. I can't do curbside service. There are other businesses that have been able to make do by reinventing the wheel. And that is never an option for this industry. So I, I'm intrigued with Rebecca's home daycare that's outside. It's, it's got to be very special circumstances because I have to adhere to compliance concerns with community care licensing, um, the Department of Health. Uh, it would be unfathomable for me to have the children take a nap outside with our current setting. My business and this building is designed to accommodate growth and development for children both indoor and outdoor. So I can't change the business model. I can't bend with this. And the county and the state make sure that I don't. So I need some help and we need it quickly. We have, we've talked a little bit about, you know, how this is disproportionately impacting women and lower income women and women of color. We were talking a little bit about governments, but what could parents do to help as they make decisions about their children's care? Oh, I think um, some of the things I mentioned about what providers need, I think that, again, parents are a powerful constituency. And I think uh, being advocates and calling for your local and state leaders and policymakers to provide those things for your providers and your children who are in those programs is definitely something parents can be doing. I also think, you know, long-term that, um, you know, we, we have to have public investment in early care and education. Just the model of providing services, it wasn't working very well pre-pandemic and the rug has just been pulled out from the sector, um, as Holly described, you know, it's crippling. And so I think that calling for long-term changes and in investment is, is definitely something parents can be doing and, and working with providers to build advocacy uh, around this. And then I think, you know, in the immediate, what you can do as a parent if you're using childcare is just really consider your risk factors and those for your child on a daily basis, right? And really just be thinking and be thoughtful. We heard a, a lot of open comments in our survey, more open comments than I've ever had in any research survey we've ever done. I mean, people, providers had a lot to say and, and clearly want to be heard. And there was so much about just the worry and not sure what's happening outside of their program. You know, you can't control what other people are doing. And so I would just really say, you know, ask yourself daily, you know, have you been to a social gathering, a family gathering with people outside your home that you don't know what maybe they've been doing? Um, have you been exposed even if you don't have symptoms? Um, and if you answer yes to those things, you have to skip bringing your kid to childcare um, until you know that you're in the clear um, and that your provider can, can be tested as well. Um, Randy, I wanted to ask you, I, we were talking a bit about um, there are, you know, outside activities or other things that you had in addition to childcare. It seems like maybe those are 
are just gone for good. <laughs> what has been uh, your experience with those? So my son was in a preschool um, previous to COVID that closed down for obvious reasons. And then not only did they not reopen, they said that they're never going to reopen. And so I've been in touch with some of the parents and the, and the faculty since then. And they're scrambling. I mean, as parents, you know, you, you really are invested where, where you put your child because you want to put your child in, in, a good, in a good environment, an environment that you would want to be in yourself. So these teachers and the, the director, so they, I know they're actively trying to reopen, but at the same time, I'm sure, you know, everyone's asking the same question. It's like, well, how easy is that, is that going to be? You know, not only with finding a facility, but making sure it's up to code, you know, meets all the health guidelines and is going to pass all the inspections that I'm sure they're, they would have to go to. So, I mean, we, we all felt for them during the event and even now after, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we just got the, the rug, you know, talking about the rug pulled out under you. I mean, it was just that we were expecting, we were getting active emails saying like, we're going to reopen in a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, an email with, with no text, just the, an attachment that said, we're not reopening from the owner of the establishment. And so at that point, everyone was just like, I'm sure there's a story going on back here. And so, yeah, we, we don't know the, the full story, but we kind of have some ideas. But we were lucky that we were able to fall back on the daycare provider that we had miles in previous to the preschool. Uh, luckily, some of the preschool kids are at this daycare, and I still see some of his preschool friends outside of the daycare. And yeah, I just kind of chat and see like, so how are, how are you doing? How, how did you deal with all the stress? How are you managing? And I mean, it's just, it's all over the place and everyone's just scrambling. Um, I'm wondering as, as the last question before we get to uh, audience questions, Randy, as a parent on this panel, have you heard anything that has changed your decision-making in any way? Um, maybe not changed. One thing is definitely reinforced is what we just talked about that since you know, if we open ourselves up in one way by going to daycare and, you know, anyone who has kids in daycare, like previously we had a cold continuously. So we were just always sick. And then we went through this period where like we haven't had a cold for a while. And so, you know, carrying that through now, it's like, okay, we, we do need to be very conscious of what decisions we make. And, you know, luckily it's not like we're stopping doing something that we really like doing because we've already completely acknowledged like we cannot do all the things that we used to do so it's nothing drastic but it definitely it does warrant us to just pause and remember that it's not just our family's health that's at risk it's everyone that we touch kpbs on demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating, and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how. 
This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. In the final segment of our special on COVID-19 and the child care crisis, we'll hear questions from audience members. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser is joined by panel members Dr. Lee Austin, Rebecca Fielding-Miller, Randy Lum, and daycare center owner Holly Weber. This question is from Matthew and how has this disproportionately affected women? How many women need to drop out of the workforce due to workplace inflexibility? And Leah, I don't know if you have specific numbers on that or Rebecca, if you have, you know, your own experience that that you've been talking about. Well, I think what we do know, and I don't have the specific numbers for California in front of me, but I think, you know, there is a lot of research, um, again, pre-pandemic and then in the middle of the pandemic that does demonstrate that a lack of childcare impacts uh, working moms um, the most, that it it inhibits their ability to work full-time or work at all, and that it's been working moms who have been more likely to completely drop out of the workforce um, in order to provide childcare. This pattern existed pre-pandemic and it's been magnified and and exacerbated uh, in this crisis. And I think one of the things about this this crisis is we have with, you know, childcare needing to be available and moms, you know, predominantly, you know, women who are impacted by the lack of childcare. It's like we've pitted these two groups of women uh, against each other because there's basically been a policy failure to address working parents and childcare providers in the middle of this crisis. Yeah, and you know, we do have data from um, a very particular niche, but there's um, studies have been done showing that um, women, um, I believe economists and physicians, we're seeing systematically less research has been done by women um, in the past nine months. So women have been less likely to publish studies than their male counterparts. Um, and if you look at the biotech workforce is, is literally half or a little bit majority women, um, even if it doesn't bother you that women are being systematically pushed out of the workforce, um, women who are likely to be coming up with vaccines and therapeutics and treatment are being systematically pushed out of the workforce because our biotech workforce is women. I agree with everything Leah just said. I think that there has been, I think a lot of mental health impacts both on working moms who suddenly have to do everything full time But also when you think about women who um, worked at home taking care of their kids, there were a million different respites from that, right? You could go to the zoo for a minute. And so I think that there is an enormous systematic impact on working women that we can document in in each given field. But I think there have been um, some pretty across the board uh, intense impacts on, on all women who are caregivers, which is a lot of us. Yeah this question, what can we as employers do to help working parents manage through these difficult times? And I don't know, uh, Leah, maybe if you have have recommendations on on that. Certainly flexibility, um, providing as much flexibility as possible. Um, In some jobs where people certainly can't be working from home um, and, you know, people who are working in grocery stores, and as Randy described, you know, there are so many other categories of essential workers. Um, where are the opportunities to be flexible there uh, to ensure that people can work alternative shifts if they need to, if they need to trade with 
you know, partners or other family members um, and providing support, providing support for childcare. Um, you know, we've again seen some things happen in this crisis in other states um, uh, where they tried to, uh, some states like Rhode Island was doing this where they were having a system as their entire state closed childcare, um, where they were trying to help uh, people utilize one-on-one -on -one services, that you have one caregiver coming into your home. And so, you know, childcare support can be provided to do that as well. Um, so there, there's many ways I think employers can be financially supporting access to services that parents um, so desperately need, as well as really making those accommodations um, and balancing and offering paid leave. I am very lucky that I work for, I'm very privileged to work for the University of California. They extended extra paid leave so that people could take that administrative leave to be home um, for any number of, of reasons uh, in this crisis. And this question I think would be best for Holly. Uh, it's a kind of a specific question. Do you have recommendations for staff if a child starts presenting COVID symptoms during the day while in care? Okay, so if there are symptoms of illness, there's um, protocol that we have. There's uh, the county's provided a decision tree, um, which helps us kind of guide through symptoms of illness, um, pediatric support to determine if it's a chronic illness, uh, such as maybe asthma or allergies. So there's a system put in place for it. There are protocols that are put in place for it. And there, um, what, what is expected is that if there is a symptom of illness, it is to be treated as if it could be COVID related since cold and allergy and flu symptoms mimic um, and are so similar to the ones of COVID. So there are protocols in place for that. And it's individually assessed and determined to varying degrees. And then there are extensive policies for uh, absences to occur until symptoms are gone. And it's for a length of time, which will add to the economic um, impact to the, the deficit of it. Because then in turn, you don't have a child that's returning after two or three days, 72 hour period. You're having children that are out for 10 to 14 days at a time, which this, is necessary health-wise. I, I get that. Right. But adding to you know the overall detriment of the industry. A couple of people have asked uh, similar questions about how would you or how are you going to handle the regular flu cold season where, you know, kids might have runny noses um, day to day I'm, basis. <laughs> I'm treating it as if it could be COVID and 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 that's just the protocol. That is what the county guidelines are. That is what we have to do. It's a different time. It's a different climate. And you know, preschool cooties in, in cold and flu season timeframes are looking very different this year. And we have to do it that way. You know, if I could, um, yeah, I think, you know, in, in public health, we think about um, uh, the things that affect people's health and, and how we need to act to keep one another healthy on, on kind of different levels. So there's this individual level of, is it a cough because everything's on fire? Is it a flu? Is it allergy? And, you know, the provider and the parent and the kid, to a certain degree, depending on the age, um, have to make that individual call. Mm -hmm. But we also, and I think Leah has done a really beautiful job of emphasizing this over and over again, we have to think about the system that we're in and how that affects people's health. So I think I 
as somebody in public health find it um, a little bit frustrating and troubling that we have pushed all of these decisions to parents and caregivers when we have kind of systematically made the decision um, not to prioritize uh, reopening childcare and even K through 12 safely. So when we've made the decision that um, gyms need to open at 10% capacity and, and people need to be able to drink a beer inside, um, which forces people like Holly and Randy and me into these really impossible choices. So it, um, I, I think we have to consider the fact that we're not making these choices in isolation. We're making them in a, in a policy environment and a social environment that's, that's forcing them to a certain extent. Thank you, Rebecca, absolutely. Okay. Um, this question is from Carrie and Holly, I think you keep pretty good tabs on this. Um, do you know how many childcare centers have been affected by COVID-19 at this point? And I guess, I don't know if she's specifically referring to San Diego County. I think I'm the last time I checked, there were two outbreaks at preschools. The last I heard mm -hmm. was what was recently reported um, by one of our local news affiliates, and I think it was two. I don't have current data on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not privy to that kind of information. There, uh, go ahead. there have been, if I can just jump in, um, yeah, sure. statewide, um, there have been over 2,300 cases. Um, as of two days ago. Um, the information is available on the State Department of Social Services website by county um, and by type of case, which I think is really helpful to see because what we do see is, um, you know, in centers, the cases are predominantly among adults and in family childcare homes, it's among the, the staff who are running the programs as well as other family members and um, children. Now, what we don't know from the state data is how much of that is transmission happening in child care centers, um, which makes it, it just makes it challenging. I think Rebecca yeah. alluded to this earlier to understand um, how much of that is happening elsewhere and is associated with, with somebody coming into a child care center. But, you know, it's still really, I think, important data to, to have and understand that, mm -hmm. um, it kind of moves away, I think, from the idea at the very beginning of the pandemic that I know we heard a lot, which was, you know, childcare is kind of risk-free. Risk and I think Rebecca, again, kind of laid this out saying, like, the science is, you know, the knowledge of the science is changing and developing. Um, and what we know about infection is changing. Um, so. Yeah, and, you know, I... Yeah, it's such a big question of can kids transmit? And I'll tell you that other people who are as smart or smarter than me have read the same data and come to different conclusions that kids don't even get sick as much as adults. Um, we have seen some data suggesting that transmission from kids to adults is a lot less likely, um, but there's not a lot of it. And we always like to see a lot of numbers before we make claims like that. Um, and to be kind of a bummer, I'm going to say that a lot of those, I would wonder about a lot of those numbers saying, well, we don't have a lot of diagnosed cases in kids. Because we do know that kids are way less likely to have symptoms, which means they're way less likely to get tested. And I also know anecdotally that some pediatricians are more or less willing to order a test for a kid. So. Um, I would not be surprised if the number of um, actual diagnosed cases in those state databases are pretty systematically low. And 
Oh, such a bummer. Yeah. Probably the same for, for outbreak tracing. And that concludes our special, COVID-19 and the Child Care Crisis, hosted by KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser, featuring Dr. Lee Austin, Rebecca Fielding Miller, Randy Lum, and Holly Weber, the owner and operator of Magic Hours Children's Center. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.